0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: I'm Jordan Smith, a senior reporter for The Intercept. Welcome to Descent, an intercepted miniseries about the Supreme Court.
2: There are three federalist papers on the elections clause, not a word, anything like this. What he would do is gut the ordinary checks and balances. And and so to me, it's not
3: so much the sort of troubling worry of we have the state legislature violating federal constitutional law because we as the Supreme Court and other courts in the federal system can look at that because it's a question of, did they violate the federal constitution? Here he's saying, no, we do have to comply with the federal constitution. What we can violate is the state constitution. And what I don't,
2: I I can't wrap my mind around that argument. I can't either, Your Honor.
1: Listening to the Moore v. Harper oral arguments about this notion of an independent state legislature, I like Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson and former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neal Katyal, could not wrap my mind around the logic of the case. As U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preloger also argued, the theory before the Supreme Court would sow chaos in state and federal elections.
4: Throughout our nation's history, state legislatures enacting election laws have operated within the bounds of their state constitutions, enforced by state judicial review. This practice dates from the Articles of Confederation, and the framers carried it forward by using parallel language in the Elections Clause to assign state legislatures a duty to make laws. Text, longstanding practice, and precedent show that the Elections Clause did not displace this ordinary check on state lawmaking. Petitioners' contrary theory rejects all of this history and would wreak havoc in the administration of elections across the nation. Their theory would invalidate constitutional provisions in every single state, many tracing back to the founding.
1: The basic idea behind this so-called theory is that the Constitution's election clause gives to state legislatures, and only state legislatures, the power to set conditions for holding elections for federal office, like the House of Representatives. And that essentially no one, and definitely not a state Supreme Court, can really stop them from doing whatever they want. Like restricting voting by mail, or decreasing the number of polling places, or by shamelessly gerrymandering an election map. To break down this case and its far-reaching implications, I'm joined by Elizabeth Wydra. She's the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center— a think tank, law firm, and action center dedicated to fulfilling the progressive promise of the Constitution's text and history. Throughout her tenure, she has filed more than 200 briefs on behalf of the Center and so many others, including preeminent constitutional scholars and historians, state and local government organizations, and other groups like AARP and the League of Women Voters. Elizabeth, welcome to Dissent.
5: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you.
1: Okay, to start, can you just give us a little bit of background on this case? Tell us who the parties are, how it landed at the court, and what is the theory that the North Carolina legislators are presenting?
5: Yes, absolutely. So there is a very important case at the Supreme Court this term called Moore versus Harper. And it comes from an extreme partisan gerrymander in North Carolina for the North Carolina state elections. Um, A lot of people I'm sure are familiar with the idea of a gerrymander, but kind of the way it worked out in this case was, let's say there was pretty much an evenly split popular vote in the state of North Carolina under this extreme partisan gerrymandered map. It would have resulted in like 10 Republican seats and four Democratic seats, even if it was an evenly split popular vote. So because the North Carolina state constitution guarantees free elections. And here, it certainly did not seem as if it was a free election, because even if more people voted for Democrats, they'd somehow end up with Republicans (laughs) through the map. Um, The North Carolina Supreme Court struck down the extreme partisan gerrymandered map, and they went through a couple iterations of this. And then a group of North Carolina Republican state legislators pushed the argument that because the Constitution gives to the state legislatures, the Constitution uses the term legislatures, the power to regulate the time, place, and manner of decisions, that the state Supreme Court of North Carolina couldn't enforce North Carolina state constitutional guarantees. And basically that the North Carolina state legislature had unfettered authority to draw the map however they want, even if it violated the North Carolina state constitution. So we get up to the Supreme Court and uh, there we see really a clash of the conservative majority against itself. Um, We see, you know, Really uh, spectacular legal advocacy from the side of the folks who are pushing back against this idea. And the backdrop for all of this is that what's known as the independent state legislature theory, which is what the North Carolina Republican legislators are pushing this idea that state legislatures can do whatever they want with respect to elections without checks or balances, it would have an important impact not just on the drawing of congressional maps or um, partisan gerrymanders, but it could have a huge impact on democracy itself. And so the independent state legislature theory is really incredibly important, and that's what's at the heart of the Morby Harper case
1: we should be clear on the constitutional clause that we're talking about. And it seems like in the whole kind of framework of the thing, it's kind of unremarkable and just kind of is sitting there. But this is what it is. So I was just going to read it so everybody kind of knows exactly what we're talking about. Here's the clause. The times, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may, at any time by law, make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. So... If you could break down what's happening here with this clause and, and how that, you know, term legislature is, is being used to sort of further the objectives of the North Carolina legislators.
5: Yeah. So I guess as a as a backdrop, you know, the Constitution in many places kind of has layered authority for things. So sometimes state and local governments have certain authority. Sometimes the federal government has the authority. Sometimes, like in this instance, the state has some authority subject to checks by the federal political branches or the federal courts. And so what I want to acknowledge is that, you know, if if you are, are a lay person and you're reading this, it does say the word legislatures of the state. So you might be, oh, okay, well, the North Carolina Republican state legislators have a good argument. No, they don't. <laughs> and that's because. Certainly, when the elections clause was drafted by the framers of the constitution in the 18th century, the idea that state legislative activity included other aspects of state lawmaking so that would include, you know, a governor's veto of state legislative action, it would include state court checks on state legislative activity that was understood to be part of of the legislative action of a state in addition to that kind of mechanical understanding from the founding not to be like too shady about it but like the the drafters of the constitution like james madison extremely suspicious of the, uh, let's say, the quality of state legislatures. So the idea that they would have given them uh, in the Elections Clause this unfettered power without any checks or balances just doesn't really match up to the feelings that the drafters of the Constitution had about state legislatures. But I think even more important, you know, we don't want to just go on just vibes when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. You know, as Justice Katanji Brown Jackson noted in the oral argument that was held at the Supreme Court in Moore versus Harper, state constitutions create state legislatures. It's all sort of the same organism. And so if you have the state constitution, setting out certain guardrails for election processes, whether it's with respect to voting rights, whether it's with respect to the drawing of maps, or as I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail, the choosing of electors when it comes to um, presidential elections, which comes in Article 2 of the Constitution. You know, the idea that those state constitutional restrictions apply to state legislative activity is just an organic part of how this stuff works. So what might seem like a reasonable argument at first blush really isn't.
1: Exactly. And we'll get into some details on all of these things for sure. But just first, for listeners, there were a lot of lawyers arguing this case, including current U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger and two former Solicitors General, Neil Katyal and Donald Farilli, each of whom argued against this independent state legislature thing, or ISL thing for short, on behalf of the various parties. And then there was lawyer David Thompson representing the North Carolina state legislators who are hoping the Supreme Court will essentially bless this wholesale reimagination of the elections clause. Here's Thompson with his opening pitch to the justices.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the elections clause requires state legislatures specifically to perform the federal function of prescribing regulations for federal elections. States lack the authority to restrict the legislature's substantive discretion when performing this federal function. As Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist 78, the scope of legislative authority is governed by the commission under which it is exercised.
1: And here's Katyal, essentially calling this whole idea utter madness.
2: To accept petitioners' claim, you'd have to ignore the text, history, and structure of our federal constitution, as well as nearly every state constitution today. Petitioners say for two centuries, nearly everyone has been reading the clause wrong. That's a lot of wrong and a lot of wrong past elections. Frankly, I'm not sure I've ever come across a theory in this court that would invalidate more state constitutional clauses as being federally unconstitutional, hundreds of them from the founding to today. It's worth taking a pause to think about what petitioners are saying. They claim the word legislature means a species of state law that has literally never existed.
1: And here's Prelogger arguing as friend of the court in support of the various respondents.
4: There is no category of state law that has previously existed that detaches the state legislature from the state constitution and allows it free reign to have whatever laws it wants without that state constitutional check. And we think that the text and the history and precedent forcefully reinforce this idea that the framers would have understood that when they were giving this lawmaking power, it carried with it those ordinary checks and balances.
1: Anne Verley.
7: Basically, same vibe. I do want to just interject one more time that they have said that this decision is a fair representation of North Carolina law. They are not challenging it under the standard I articulate or any other standard. They have made a different argument, which is that this is, categ- it is categorically a violation of the uh, of the elections clause for state supreme courts to invoke to apply vague and general provisions. And so, I'm happy to keep answering your honest questions. I am. But but I just want to reinforce that that's they have conceded that this is a fair interpretation of North Carolina law.
1: So going back to the point that Verily was making, one of the many things that to me that's really interesting or maybe baffling might be a better word is that Thompson, in arguing in favor of the ISL, on behalf of the legislators, made it clear that they actually agreed that the North Carolina Supreme Court had gotten the law right. That, in other words, they'd properly interpreted state law, the state constitution, including the free elections clause, to determine that the map the Republican lawmakers had drawn was essentially an illegal gerrymander under state law. But I guess they're arguing that it doesn't matter that the Supreme Court just didn't have the authority to go there. <laughs> and you got to break that down. And also, I'm curious what you make of that concession that they are about what the Supreme Court here did, that they actually got it right.
5: That's a really great question. And what Don Verley, who's a fantastic lawyer, is doing here is making clear to the Supreme Court that the proponents of independent state legislature theory in the Moore versus Harper case are swinging for the fences. They are asking for an extreme, extreme understanding of what independent state legislature theory would mean, which is that even where the North Carolina state Supreme Court is getting the North Carolina Constitution correct— and the state legislature engaged in an unconstitutional under that state constitution partisan gerrymander, they cannot be, <laughs> they cannot be thwarted in their efforts to put this partisan gerrymander into place. Because, under their theory, state legislatures have unfettered authority. And what Don Verley is doing in that clip is trying to convince some of the perhaps more moderate, although it's difficult to use that label with respect to the Supreme Court, but some of the more moderate conservative members of the court from adopting a middle ground. Because one thing that did seem fairly clear from the argument was that it would be tough for the Republican state legislators to get a five-justice majority for that extreme view that state legislators can do whatever they want they could unquestionably violate the state constitutional provisions and no one can do anything about it. If you're a member of the state Supreme Court, they did have a weird concession at one point that maybe a governor could veto it. But what Don is doing in that clip is trying to say, if you want to adopt ISL light, <laughs> the idea that, you know, if a state Supreme Court has gotten the its own standards wrong then you could step in and say it it improperly asserted authority over the state legislature. Um, But that's not even what they're asking for. They are swinging for the fences with the broadest possible theory that they can.
1: Yeah. At one point earlier in the oral argument, Justice Sonia Sotomayor says that the proponents of the ISL are actually trying to rewrite history.
6: Yes, if you rewrite history, it's very easy to do. I'm not rewriting history, Your Honor. What we're saying is that when it says all elections, it's referring to the offices that were created by that constitution. You can see that in Vermont. It says all freeholders shall be eligible for office. It's not talking about the presidency of the United States because there's an age qualification. It's talking about the... So
8: why is it that in all of those states, the legislatures understood that all elections meant that you were going to have paper elections ballots in both federal
1: and congressional. This is a Supreme Court that professes this deep fidelity to this original meaning, to this text, to this history. And yet here, like Thompson had very few actual historical sites for the proposition that the state legislature is this like freewheeling, hands-off entity when it comes to federal elections, And this stands in real stark contrast to the history y'all cite in your amicus brief. Could you tell us about the history, where the legislature comes from, and importantly, how that entity was viewed back at the founding?
5: So I think this case is really remarkable in that it puts the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court's fidelity to originalism to the test, because here it's unquestionably clear that the extreme proponents of the independent state legislature theory are arguing without any basis in constitutional text or history. At the time that the elections clause was written, the idea of legislatures of the states included checks and balances like the state courts, like the governor. um, The idea that limits in state constitutions constrained state legislatures, and that was part and parcel of the idea of a legislature, were just commonly known and accepted by the drafters of the constitution. And, you know, they had skepticism about state legislatures and the quality, perhaps, of their decision-making. And so they would never have given unfettered authority in the elections clause to state legislatures without those kind of traditional checks from state courts and state constitutions. And I think what's really interesting is, you know, of course, we at the Constitutional Accountability Center make these originalist arguments against independent state legislature theory in our brief. But we have a lot of company in this case from conservative originalists, some of the leading lights of the conservative legal movement, like one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, several deeply conservative and well-respected in conservative circle judges appointed by the president's Bush, they came out and said these arguments in support of ISL are complete bunk. And so you have a cross-ideological, really just like tsunami of argument against independent state legislature theory. And if you have these justices on the court who profess to be originalist ignoring all of that, it's really going to say that, you know, this might not be so much about originalism. It might be more about pursuing a political partisan agenda.
1: Yeah. And just sort of naked power, it seems yeah.
4: like. <laughs>
5: yeah. There was an
1: interesting point, or I thought it was interesting. I'm curious what you think, where uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett is like trying to get at history and, and says, okay, well, if at the time of the founding, would it, be understood that the legislature like had the power to to set elections and if that was like a baseline understanding then the second part of the clause which basically allows congress to step in would have been seen just as a check on that power that already existed and not that this was some clause that was like setting up some new power for the state legislature, as Thompson seemed to be arguing. I mean, I I, I think I read that sort of right, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that kind of, uh, that little sort of piece of the argument.
5: Justice Coney Barrett, you know, it was interesting to try to figure out where she was coming from. She definitely seemed skeptical of the um, North Carolina Republican lawyer's presentation of history and also, you know, the conclusions that he was drawing about that. You know, the concession that I think Chief Justice Roberts brought out of him that, you know, a governor could veto state legislative actions with respect to the elections clause, you know, didn't seem to be consistent at all with his textual argument that, you know, it's legislatures get to do whatever they want. And so um, Justice Coney Barrett did seem to pick up on that. And you know, I think that's why a lot of us after listening to the argument, you know, counted perhaps her and Chief Justice Roberts in the camp of people who weren't going to maybe jump in with both feet on the independent state legislature theory. But I think there is definitely a possibility that that there's a majority on the court that could leave the door open for some variation of this. And that could do a lot of damage, even if the court doesn't take the most extreme view of independent state legislature theory, which I certainly hope they will not.
4: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or
1: SleepNumber.com. Another thing that struck me was that Justice Jackson just kept coming back over and over again to a very basic question, which is if the state legislature is a creation of the state constitution and that's where it derives its power, then how can it act outside of the scope of power granted to it by the state constitution? So here's a clip of one of those moments.
3: If the state constitution tells us what the state legislature is and what it can do and who gets on it and what the scope of legislative authority is, then when the state Supreme Court is reviewing the actions of an entity that calls itself the legislature, why isn't it just... Looking to the state Constitution and doing exactly the kind of thing you say when you when you uh, admitted that this is really about what authority the legislature has,
6: in other words, the authority comes from the state constitution, doesn't it? no, your honor, it's a federal function, and we know that from lesser so this court in lesser held it's a federal function when these duties are assigned to the states, that is a, a duty that is assigned by the federal yes house.
3: it's a duty the duty is to Uh, make this legislative determination, that is, the determination about elections. My question is, where does the entity's power come from to make any determinations at all, right? I mean, yes, I see that the federal constitution is giving them the right to make a particular determination, but they're not giving just anybody in the state that right. They're giving somebody called the legislature— and in order for us to have a thing called the legislature, we have to look at the state constitution to determine where those, you know, what that entity's powers are, how they can be exercised. Other than that, I don't really understand how the legislature is authorized to act at all.
1: Throughout the argument, she kept saying basically, yeah, 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 but this, right? So I'm curious what you make of this, and can you explain what she's trying to get at over and over again here, that Thompson regularly seems to be sidestepping or just like flat out avoiding answering?
5: Yeah, I mean, it is a fundamental flaw in the logic. The proponents of independent state legislature theory are saying that they can act contrary to the very charter that creates them. Justice Jackson, one of the things that I I really enjoyed uh, seeing from her after she joined the bench is the way that she just zeroes in on these, you know, fatal flaws in the logic of um, advocates' cases. It's probably terrifying if you're arguing before the court. But, you know, and this was where she just really, I think, got them and they and Thompson never came up with a good response to Justice Jackson because there isn't a good response you know the idea that the state legislatures can ignore the state constitution when the state constitution creates them just doesn't make any sense and the state courts applying the state constitution you know that's how those guardrails are applied and, you know, she just really got to the point and he never really was able to get around that.
1: No, I mean, I don't, if, if not the constitution, the state constitution, where would the legislature come from? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah. and, and if it, if
1: it doesn't come from anywhere else, then how can it not be bound by the thing that created it? And as you said, gives it the guardrails that it operates under in every other way, exactly. I guess, except for
5: asterisk, this one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Which, right. You no, know, it doesn't make any sense. You know, Thompson, the lawyer for the Republican uh, legislators, never really came up with an answer. But, you know, some of the conservative allies, perhaps, of this argument on the court did try to suggest a way around that by saying perhaps state courts, when it comes to the elections clause, have to be enforcing identifiable standards. And so they couldn't be these vague Broad terms, they had to be identifiable standards. And so that was kind of the way that other conservatives tried to get around Justice Jackson's trenchant point. But there's no way under the most extreme theory that you can get around that.
1: No. And also to that point, they're like, well, there's these squishy things like fair elections. What could that possibly mean? How could we possibly know? And I think there's a one point where Sotomayor is like, what do we mean when we say it's free speech? What do we mean when we say due process? Like, I guess in that sort of, whatever the theory is about the, you know, these mushy things, Mm -hmm. that somehow the federal court would be able to come in to decide, I guess, when it's too mushy. But I mean, that makes no sense to me either. Because first of all, we have the same sort of mushy, that's not the right word. We have the same sort of free-flowing kind of ideas that are embodied in our constitution that they still can't agree on lots of times what they mean, let alone would they know what North Carolina meant by it or Wisconsin or whoever else. I just thought this is like a dangerous theoretical middle ground or that, you know, we're going to yes. give you some out here and I find that it scares me a little bit because I, I don't I don't I don't think that they're better positioned to decide what that meant for the history of North Carolina or any other state, than those Supreme Court justices in those states would be.
5: Yeah, you're exactly right. And this is where we get to some of, you know, the hypocrisy of some of the conservative justices, um, you know, and advocates, I think. You know, there's often, we're used to hearing from conservatives about federalism and states' rights. And, you know, here, instead of kind of broad deference to state courts, They floated this idea that, you know, unless state courts were doing something that was, you know, really along the lines of an identifiable and specific standard, that the federal courts would come in and say, no, no, no. And that was a little unclear exactly what they were talking about there. But, you know, you're exactly right. Like our Constitution and many state constitutions have broad guarantees. And for a lot of us, that's a good thing you know we should have you know broad guarantees in the Constitution that then are translated into more specifics by legislation by policy making, by the political branches. but you know often conservatives we've seen in this court, um, whether it's with respect to reproductive rights or other areas of equality and equal citizenship, very limited vision of what those broad terms mean in the Constitution. And so there does seem to be a a little bit of a freak out by some of these conservative justices about what are intentionally broad and sweeping guarantees. You know, the idea of free elections, which is what we're talking about under the North Carolina state constitution, is a big term. It's a big guarantee. It's a broad guarantee. And it should be. And so if we have a ruling from the court that cuts back on state courts ability to protect voter rights, you know, to protect against uh, suppression and obstacles being placed on the right to vote, you know, in addition to partisan gerrymandering, not just, you know, not even getting to the fake electors scheme that former President Trump and his allies were trying to push using the same independent state legislature theory. You know, there could be a lot of mischief made that that would be to the detriment of our democracy.
1: Yeah. Okay. so we played that clip of Justice Jackson talking to Thompson and then Thompson tried to respond and then Justice Sotomayor jumped in.
6: Well, Your Honor, we know that's not right, because in Lesser, the people of Maryland tried to prevent women from voting. And the way they did that is they put in their state constitution a prohibition on adopting the 19th Amendment. And then it came to this court, and this court said uh, that this is a federal function, and that substantive limit of the state constitution was inapplicable. So that's what we're dealing with here is a federal function. But that was
8: because it it violated the federal constitution, not because it violated the state constitution.
1: But let me go back to what I don't fundamentally understand about this case. And a bit later, Thompson and Sotomayor have a back and forth on the difference between substance and procedure.
8: It seems that every answer you give is to get you what you want, but it makes little sense. We have more than one occasion said that we describe the task in Mistrata of distinguishing between substantive and procedural rules as a logical morass that the court is loath to enter. And, and I simply—what I, I, I don't understand is the question that Justice Jackson asked you, which is— if judicial review is in the nature of ensuring that someone's acting within their constitutional limits, I don't see anything in the words of the Constitution that take that power away from the
1: states. And and this kind of gets to what you were talking about, the veto thing, I think. So I'm hoping you can try to kind of explain the significance of this idea, this procedure versus substance thing hurt my brain a little bit? (laughs) Because it seems like Thompson's saying, well, cool, right? So the legislature passes something and then if it has like this rote hurdle to cross, say it has to be presented to the governor and she has the power to veto something under state law, well, that's just procedure. But anything substantial that I guess would give anyone else, especially the courts, an opportunity to change what the legislature has done, then that is out. But What I don't actually get is that don't they kind of both get you to the same place? So, like, if there's a map, you know, an election map, and the governor's like, nope, veto, isn't that basically a substantial change? So is this just weird parsing? without actual difference? Or can you just kind of help my brain wrap itself
5: around this? Because I found it all, whew, a little hot. Yeah, no one was really buying that distinction. Um, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. You know, I, I don't think there was a majority of justices on the Supreme Court who were buying that distinction. You know, it seemed to be an attempt to say something like the procedures by which a decision is adopted or made can be enforceable by the state courts, or by a governor, but the actual, like, substantive guardrails can't be enforced by state courts. And that just doesn't really make any sense, you know, other than through kind of a results-oriented, backward, kind of, uh, you know, reverse-engineered logic. And, you know, I think that part of this when it was argued a little more coherently by some of the friendlier justices on the court in their questioning of the lawyers who were pushing back on independent state legislature theory, was this idea of trying to limit some of the interference on state legislatures when it comes to election procedures. And that's where we get to the ghost of Bush v. Gore, where all bad things come from.
1: (laughs) I was just going to bring this up. So why don't we just go to that? Because the thing that keeps coming up over and over is Bush v. Gore. So just a reminder that it's the court case that essentially – ended the recount in Florida back in 2000 and landed George W. Bush in the White House. So why, why, why Bush me Gore? And, you know, right? What, what's the significance and how terrified should I be? Yes. <laughs> that this has somehow raised its head from like the, you know. Uh, I know. From, it was oh.
5: supposed to be fact bound, but somehow it, it still sticks around. It's escaped its that. cage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and it's interesting because many of the now justices, when they were lawyers, the conservative justices worked on the Bush v. Gore case on behalf of uh, President Bush. So in Bush v. Gore, there was a kind of side argument from the late Chief Justice Rehnquist, a very conservative jurist, who argued that, that Florida didn't follow its own procedures. And so the Florida State Supreme Court just kind of got the procedures wrong and so that was an acceptable reason for interfering with the Florida state Supreme Court's adjudication and decisions in the recount. Because again, normally there is this deference that we provide to state courts when it comes to their interpretation of state law, because you know they presumably are the experts and not the federal courts who are expert in federal law. And so this kind of side argument from Chief Justice Rehnquist focused on the state court presumably getting it wrong. And this was different from the majority's basis for their ruling, which was obnoxiously on the Equal Protection Clause of the federal constitution. All of that is a long way of saying that there was sort of this attempt by some of the conservative justices in Morby Harper who might Not be willing to take the train all the way to crazy town when it comes to independent state legislature theory, but might be willing to sort of like get on for half of the ride to say that, you know, if it seemed like state courts were not properly enforcing the state constitution that there could be limits on the way that they check state legislative activity when it comes to federal elections but that is very unclear really what that means and it really would open the door I think to all sorts of shenanigans and litigation and major questions about something as sacred and fundamental to democracy as you know the vote of the people, being understood to be reliable and predictable in the sense of, you know, you cast your vote, your vote gets counted, your vote has meaning. That is concerning. Yeah. And actually,
1: there's a great, I'm sure, remember, there's a great part where Justice Elena Kagan really hit home the ramifications, the fallout, I guess, essentially, that would come from an embracing of the ISL. Let's play that clip.
9: This is a theory with big consequences. It, um, it would... Uh, say that if a legislature engages in the most extreme forms of gerrymandering, um, there is no state constitutional remedy for that, even if the courts think that that's a violation of the Constitution. It would say that legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of (coughs) voter protections that the state constitution in fact prohibits uh, it might allow the legislatures to insert themselves, to give themselves a role in the certification of elections and, and, um, uh, and, and, and the way election results are, um, calculated. So, um, and in all these ways, I think what might strike a person is that, uh, this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way, um, big governmental decisions are made in this country. And, and you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. Because legislators, we all know, have their own self-interest. They want to get reelected, And so there are countless times when they have incentives to suppress votes, to dilute votes, to negate votes, to prevent um, voters from having true access, and true opportunity to engage the political process.
1: Following on that, it's sort of, if, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of North Carolina, and we could go full train to crazy town, or we could even just make a stop at the depot, however you want to kind of take that, um, how would it potentially affect the way that elections are run? And, and what could be ramifications even maybe beyond what Justice Kagan has kind of outlined during argument?
5: If you start from kind of the facts of the Moore v. Harper case and then work your way out from that, you know, obviously it would allow extreme partisan gerrymanders to go forward without meaningful checks. Um, you know, this is a real problem. You know, you have states where, again, like the popular vote, if you look at what the votes said, you know, in terms of who people voted for and then look at the way that they're translated into representatives, it bears very little relation. You know, in this case, it would have been if there was about an evenly split popular vote, it would have gone to about 10 Republicans and four Democrats. And so, you know, the the extreme parties and gerrymandering maps, just, you know, the facts of this case are very concerning. And because the U.S. Supreme Court has said recently that they do not think that the federal courts... Have a role to play in striking down extreme partisan gerrymanders, that really would allow them to continue without any recourse for voters. So, if you then expand from that, you know, worth looking at state limits on the right to vote, you know, voter suppression, making it harder for people to cast their votes, whether that's changing, you know, voting procedures or the way that you register to vote. Those could be could go forward without any sort of state court checks and balances, and then jumping from Article One of the Constitution to Article Two, which deals with the way in which uh, the President of the United States is elected.
1: Actually, let me stop you, because I, we might as well just put that in the mix now, because I was going to ask you about that, I think, because there's this other piece, right, which is this is Article 2 piece. Maybe you can say what that is, because I I think the fear I hear in part, from what I've heard and read, is sort of like, that this is like one step. <laughs> this 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 form of the independent state legislature is one step, and that there's like, there could be something far worse. And that is based on this ISL buried in Article 2. So maybe you could just unpack that a little bit, because I'm not sure that everybody knows exactly what that is. Although, you know, (laughs) we've heard fake electors this, fake electors that, but how does this all kind of tie together, I guess?
5: Right. So Article 1 of the Constitution that we're talking about, um, the section that we're talking about from Article 1 of the Constitution of Morby Harper deals with the time, place, and manner of congressional elections, of of representatives, and the ability of the legislatures of the states to prescribe those uh, the manner of elections. And then when you get to Article 2 and the clause that deals with the election of the president, it talks about the legislatures of the states, so again, kind of the same wording, being in control of setting the manner of choosing electors to the electoral college. So generally in, you know, when we're talking about how to interpret legal phrases and and words in the laws, if it's interpreted one way in a related context, you interpret it similarly in the other context. And so the concern is that if there is this unfettered authority given to state legislatures with respect to the time, place, and manner of congressional elections in that part of the Constitution, when it comes to the manner in which electors are chosen for the president in Article Two of the Constitution, then that same extreme independent state legislature theory would apply. And then you would get yourself into situations like we saw being pushed by Team Trump, um, where they were urging state legislators to put up a whole new slate of electors that went against the will of the people in that particular state and that would have kept President Trump in power despite the vote of the people to the contrary.
1: Uh, so nothing that much to worry about.
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's definitely something to worry about. And I think, you know, it's, uh. you know, sometimes I understand that, you know, for folks who are not deeply entrenched in this, You know, your eyes start to glaze over when it's, you know, gerrymandering and, uh, you know, independent state legislature theory and all of this. And in some ways, I think that was very savvy to have for proponents of the independent state legislature theory to bring it to the court in this particular context and not in that perhaps most dangerous context of trying to keep a president in power despite the vote of the people electing a different president, you know, and so I think there should be no mistaking that that is what um, we would be headed toward if independent state legislature theory is accepted in this particular case.
1: Neil Cottiel's opening was, was, was sort of lasered in.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For 233 years, states have not read the elections clause the way you just heard. There are two reasons to affirm. One is that when enacting legislation, there's no such thing as an independent state legislature. The other is that North Carolina statutes authorize what the North Carolina court did. So on the
1: first episode of Dissent, I spoke to legal analyst Jordan Rubin about why the court would even take up this case, right? The point that Katyal is making here sort of, to me, underscores that question. Um, What do you make of them taking the case in the first place?
5: Yeah, I think you know it's important to remember that to take a case, you need four justices. Um, and to win a case, you need five. So we already know that there are um, that there are a number of justices on the court who either are embracing the theory. I'd put under that category probably uh, justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And then at least, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, who during his time as an advocate, argued uh, in a certain sense for the independent state legislature theory. So I'm not surprised necessarily that there are four justices who wanted to hear it. You know, I could see um, more, you know, again, it's kind of tough using this label uh, for this court, but it's all in context, the more quote-unquote moderate conservative members of the conservative supermajority, like perhaps Chief Justice Roberts, um, might have wanted to, you know, tweak the theory to make it a little more palatable and not quite the extreme version that is being put forth by some conservatives. We don't know because of the lack of transparency around the Sir process, which four justices, or maybe more, voted to hear the case. But you know, I, I can see some reasons why they might want to. And again, you know, if if you think about if you're someone who wants the independent state legislature theory to move forward. It's probably better to have it in the North Carolina redistricting case rather than, you know, Trump versus democracy case, um, you know, and and I will say, fortunately, we saw, you know, in most of those efforts from Team Trump, you know, when they tried to push this, they were roundly rejected by pretty much every court that, you know, John Eastman and company tried to push this theory in. So, yeah, it's, you know, they didn't need to take the case because as Neil Katyal said in his opening, there's been pretty much unanimous um, historical understanding that um, the legislative process includes state constitutional restrictions as interpreted and applied by state courts. And, you know, also Supreme Court precedent itself Suggests that that's not the way that state legislatures operate when it comes to the elections clause, and you know the response from the proponents of ISL were just like, uh, "Yeah, overturn all of that."
1: <laughs> Another thing that Jordan Rubin and I were talking about was the, was the the way in which you know we, we talked a lot about how the court essentially sets its own agenda; it can take these cases, and and so that when you come out with with an opinion that's maybe not this full embracing of this thing and you get trapped in this thing where you're saying, oh, well, we have a compromise. And I think that that, again, it's dangerous, right? Because they reach out and take this. There was no reason for them to do it. And I just, I don't know, I just really didn't have a sense. And we talked about this a little bit. It was very hard for me to tell where people stood at the end of this. And I don't know, like, even if there's a compromise opinion that goes halfway to crazy town, like, should we accept that? Do you no. know what I'm saying? Like, is that still a problem? Yeah, maybe just, yeah, go for it.
5: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think one of the hallmarks of the current Supreme Court is that because it is so, so conservative, really the window has shifted for the types of arguments that are being presented to the court. And those of us who who are court watchers and just all of us in this country should really resist that shift. Again, so like, just because you don't do the absolute craziest thing, if you still do something crazy and dangerous, that is still bad, (laughs) you know? And so I think really what we're seeing, and it's not just in this case, we've seen it, you know, across the spectrum of issues, is that these really extreme arguments are being presented to the court. And in some cases, this court is embracing those theories, you know, with the complete overturning of Roe versus Wade. That was the most extreme version of that. And, you know, just as we've seen in some other cases, you know, we're prepared for the absolute worst. And then when it doesn't happen, I think there is sometimes this tendency to be like, oh, okay, no, do not, do not give into that tendency here. I mean, look, it, it could be really bad if they fully embraced the extreme, you know, really unhinged theory of the Republican North Carolina state legislatures. But even opening the door to some version of independent state legislature theory could be extremely dangerous to democracy. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I'll just
1: wrap up on this, which would be that, you know, obviously, yeah, the faith in the Supreme Court has just really dwindled, particularly after Dobbs, which just hit so many people like a bomb. And the cases that they're, like, taking up now don't seem to offer much hope for this super measured court. So I'm curious about your sort of broader thoughts on the direction of the court and about calls for reform. And I'm curious for you, what would reform look like? When it
5: comes to reforming the Supreme Court, the way that I like to think about it, you know, is to put on the lens of what are the problems of justice that we're seeking to solve? And those problems are deep. And while I think probably the most obvious and, you know, maybe easy decision of what reform steps to take is adding more justices to the court simply because you know we haven't done it for a long time the country has grown bigger our ideas of who is included are uh, broader thank goodness and so simply having you know a few more justices is probably just good government regardless of you know what side you're on but looking deeper at the problems of justice we want to solve there are real problems of access to justice of equal justice fairness. And so, you know, we at the Constitutional Accountability Center have just done a look at the way in which these questions were looked at during the reconstruction period after the Civil War, and so many of the same issues were being debated, you know, should we expand the court? Should we um strip jurisdiction? Should we require a supermajority of justices in certain cases? And one of the things that they did in addition to expanding the court for a brief period, was they passed legislation that sought to make good on the promises of fair justice and equality in the Constitution. And so I would urge us when we talk about court reform to think more broadly than just adding justices on the court, although that's probably, you know, step number one. And think more about what can we do to actually create the system of justice that, is truly just and is the one that we want and deserve. And for this court, I think that this case, the Morby Harper case, is a real test for them because there is this overwhelming consensus amongst conservative and more liberal scholars that the independent state legislature theory is absolute bunk, even according to the conservative originalist arguments that a majority of these justices profess to follow. And so if they don't follow that constitutional text in history where it leads, which in this case would be to slam the door on independent state legislature theory, then it is just going to make absolutely clear that they're following something other than the law, which many people already suspect is a partisan ideological agenda, and that would just further damage confidence in the court and uh, the public faith that we should and deserve to have in our courts of law. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I I, I really enjoyed the discussion.
1: That was Elizabeth Wydra, president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. And that's it for this episode of Descent, a production of The Intercept. This episode was produced by Laura Flynn and Jose Olivares. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Jordan Smith.
6: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.